John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed Omnibus Addenda Volume 36 Entry 1395.IS3321 Certificate Number 21995 The Viking Or The Viking The Viking? Is that how we say it? That's how they said it. Before they went to Walhalla? Before the Valkyries took them to Walhalla? (laughs) That's right. Uh, It sounds a lot like Walla Walla. What if after you Walhalla? die? What if after you die, noble warriors just go to Walla Walla? I was just in Walla Walla, and well, it's a two del- thumbs up. It's a delightful little town. You know, Whitman College is is just as cute as a button, and <laughs> that's, uh, that's their mascot. Yeah. Go mighty buttons! And Walla Walla just has one of those. Like it's a it's a little Aggie town in the middle of nowhere that's got its own vibrant culture. There's a lot of mountain bikers now. So it's got that northwesty kind little, of little bend. Yeah, that's right. It's and it's not far from Pendleton. It's like <laughs> is that is that how they're going to get the get themselves on the map? Uh, walla walla, we're not far from Pendleton. <laughs> but you can uh there's mountains there. You can if you're really into it, you can drive over to Lewiston. <laughs> is there wine stuff? Is it yeah. like wine country? I thought so. Yeah, big wine now. Big wine area. Big so wine. so the wine stuff is bringing in the you know, the rich the people. There's like seven different Mexican restaurants where you can get mole. Like, you know, they're, the mole restaurants are well, driving out all the authentic Mexican Oaxacan food. Oaxacan food is driving out all the uh, <laughs> yeah, beans the and rice Northern places. stuff. So, yeah, it's nice. I recommend all right. it. Well, that concludes another episode of <laughs> yeah. John and Ken talking about Walla Walla. <laughs> Go to Walla Walla. <laughs> we were going to talk about the Viking. Oh, yeah, the Viking. <laughs> this was a replica Viking dragon ship built for a World's Fair. I have to pretend to be familiar with your shows. That's right. But, yeah, I, I have Sailed that right, right? across the ocean blue, but oh, yeah. not in 1492. And wound up at the Chicago Columbian Expo in 1892, I assume. Right, and then sat on the on the wharf there. Sat is sitting in the water, uh, just gradually decaying. Yeah, so that's the that's what we heard from because we talked about kind of the ignominious end of the uh, Viking. But there is good news, writes oh, Phil. Oh, hooray, Phil. Of, Tell us more. Of Winfield, Ohio, uh, Winfield, Illinois. He is a member of Friends of the Viking Ship. Awesome. The foundation that uh, is dedicated to the Vikings' preservation. Uh, and he, he's also a maintenance crew that works on the ship. They are purchasing land right now so they can have a permanent dwelling. Now, now did he say anything in his email about uh, 
Did he congratulate us on doing a wonderful job of the show, or did he just launch into stuff? He does say he enjoyed it. Okay, that's good. He then says we have one more podcast. We have one more podcast listener, implying okay. that it's him, but it could be maybe a friend of his. Uh, who listens to Omnibus is not pregnant, or it's not clear. Well, we were speculating earlier today, just offline, that there are probably people that find Omnibus by virtue of Googling a particular topic. And this seems like an instance where he... A friend of his was like, hey, did you know that this podcast did a show about your thing? Yeah. And then he listened to it and was like, why are they still talking about Diet Dr. Pepper? It's 20 (laughs) minutes into the show. We were talking about how this is what drives a lot of, I think, unhappy podcast reviews. People who find a podcast just based on the subject of the day and are like, "Uh, I have a doctoral dissertation in chaos theory. These stuff you should know, it was appear to have just been handed a half page of notes. <laughs> the Hilbert Hotel. I wrote my thesis on the Hilbert Hotel. One star. And I hate to even give that much to this ignorance, but there is no zero star review. Um, Thanks he, for listening. Phil is actually very diplomatic. Listen to this. I realize in your podcast, you were not going to have all the exact details of what you were discussing. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> he wants to know that uh, Geneva is not the uh, small podunk town we apparently implied it is. Oh. In fact, a bustling city 40 miles due west of downtown Chicago. I mean, I With Googled, a population of one. Yeah, I Googled Geneva and it's like 18,000 people. And I was like, well, come on, Phil. <laughs> but but it, it may be a bedroom community of the greater yeah, I think uh, it's Chicago more land. 21,000 people now. Um, so if we portrayed it as a backward village, uh, I think we should double down on that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Counting the 1800 people at the local community college. But I think we said that, uh, the Viking is not on display because of its lack of a, of a public site or whatever. But well, in it's fact, under, it's under a, a lean to or something. It's got a little open air barn, right? Yes. But this group actually does give tours. Oh, so every spring through fall, hundreds of people view the ship and he's, you know, he's trying not to brag, obviously, but this summer they had the Norwegian ambassador to the U.S. Whoa. No less a personage than Sven, Sven Chibstead uh, came to see the Viking. The con- he agrees grudgingly that the ship is not seaworthy, but it's still intact. And uh, this is funny to me. And it's equipped with her 32 oars. All 32? It strongly implies that there were originally 32, and now they still have 32. Nobody has walked off with an oar in the past 120 years. You know, I once did a tour with Sandra Lerke, and uh, we were playing in Ottawa, one of the great cities of Canada. You love Ottawa. You're always talking about it. And the Norwegian ambassador to Canada came to the show because Sandra Lerke, of course, is a... The, is she a big name over there? What's well, a he? And he's a he's a <laughs> prominent. Wait, you could be named Sandra. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's like it's their Alexander. Yeah. Got right. It. It's the same as being. It's you know in Russia, uh, Nikita is a boy's name. Over so, here, so over here, Nikita is nobody's name. Well, over here, it's like the name of a of La Femme Nikita. Yeah, that's right. A, <laughs> a, a little girl t- who's turned t- into a TV spy. show on the USA Network. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it was, you know, it was a typical indie rock concert in a, in a Canadian bar. Uh, but then there was a guy, there was a guy who clearly. Was he on his Blackberry the whole time? No, he, yeah, he, <laughs> he, he loosened his tie and he had four people standing around him, like two of whom were probably Norwegian secret service. Oh, do you think he's an actually a fan or is there some diplomatic purpose that is served by having him support the Norwegian arts when they visit Canada? It may be that, you know, the, the, the nation of Iceland really promotes 
yeah. their music culture. And you get the feeling when you deal with Icelandic diplomats that they really are big fans of Sigur Rós. But there's something weird about it too, like like they have to be, what? like there's some camp where they all go to learn about upcoming, uh, you know, up and coming, yeah, indie bands. I mean, there's only what is it, two hundred fifty thousand people in Iceland or whatever. So, uh, so I think that you know you can't escape the music of. Sigur I assume Rose. the Thai ambassador also has to learn how to make a delicious pad CU, hmm. you know, because you never know when that's going to come up, whether he cares that uh, about that or not. Um. The Phil refers our listeners who are curious about touring a Viking ship, which apparently can be done March through October. And are in the neighborhood of Geneva, Illinois. And are in the bustling metropolis of Geneva, Illinois. Uh, I call it the Chicago of Western Chicagoland. Uh, to go to vikingship.us. Yeah. Um, you can see a very thorough video. I don't know about you, but what's my favorite adjective for a YouTube video? Thorough. Well, it depends. If it's 10 minutes long and it's very thorough, I'm super into it. If it's an hour 40. I'm clicking to see this thorough video thorough. tour. Oh, I have to sit through an ad. We may, we may literally never know. Um, that, has, that has Friends of Viking Ship Vice President David Norden. Norden. That's Norden. A little, little on the nose. Uh, explaining the history. Um, when I replied back to tell him that um, we would definitely be talking about this on the agenda. Wait a minute. You reply to people? I reply to everyone. Whoa. Maybe I shouldn't say that on the – I won't say that on the regular show, but I'll say that on the addenda show. Yeah, because everybody Cause here Everyone here is a paying customer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Phil says, we had 195 people walk through today to visit Viking. That's actually a pretty – That's a lot. There seems to be a growing interest in Viking history. Should we Should we tell them it's all white supremacy or should uh, we not tell them? <laughs> 198 people, that's like 1% of the population of Geneva. <laughs> he allows that it may not be as popular as dinosaurs with the kids – but I saw a number of kids today. I love the idea of this kind of benevolent retiree shepherding people through a Viking ship, really th- really thinking that it could be. But, I, but is he a benevolent retiree? Is he 35 years old? The fact that he says, um, maybe not as popular as Dinosaurs with Kids, but I saw a number of kids today. I can definitely hear that voice coming from a, uh, a, a, a white-bearded face. I, I'm of, trying of a guy to... guy who golfed nine <laughs> holes and then... I'm trying to think if... Popular with dinosaurs is a is an increment of measurement. <laughs> like, is this more popular with kids than dinosaurs? Go. What about Bouncy Castle? This thorough tour of the Viking is thirty one and a half thorough minutes. Hmm. So maybe we can maybe we can edit a highlight video together. Yeah. But Phil, thank you for uh, letting us know because I would next time I'm in Chicago, I would, I'm, I would not be above driving out forty miles to see a Viking ship. If it's between March and October, I'm trying to picture you in Chicago. What am I going to do today? I've already had a, I've already had a hot beef sandwich. I've seen the Art Institute. Yep, I've been, I've been to the the Loop many times. Hey, I'm going to get an Uber to take me 40 miles outside of town. I know to the almost as large city of Geneva. Yeah, home to a Viking ship that has not just several of its oars, not just many of its oars, 30. No fewer than 32 replica Viking oars, each uh, more uh, efficient at rowing through the oceans than the last. I, I actually feel like it might be something I would do if there's no air and space museum nearby. I'm not joking around, except, you know, the thing about, the thing I've discovered is there's such a surplus of these old planes now that there's now more air and space museums than kids who want to go to them. Yeah. So you go to these places and there's there's 20 VFW guys standing around hoping to you'll ask questions about the planes. And and many fewer than that visitors. The problem is there are way too many 
aged veterans. It's not, you know, I'll go to an air and space museum all day. Just please don't make me talk to a guy in a VFW hat. When you're saying there's too many aged veterans, do you have a solution for this problem mm, in mind that you'd care, to, that you'd care to suggest to our listeners? <laughs> Form them into a brigade and set them against our mortal enemies. Or set them against each other. So what do you think? Air and Space Museum, more or less popular than dinosaurs? Oh, I think quite a bit less, actually. Mm. I think there was a generation of kids that were like, airplanes, pew, 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 pew. That was me. Uh, and for whatever reason, I don't know, end of the Cold War, be, dr- beginning of drones? I it's don't know. back to dinosaurs, dinosaurs, duh. <laughs> the refuge of the dumb toddler. Duh. Tyrannosaurus. <laughs> the dinosaur. Duh. <laughs> That's harsh. Entry 1315.PR2131. Certificate number 17918. Tom Thumb. Uh, about the historic proto-locomotive. Uh, oh, you know, another show I researched was was Jell-O. And of course, as we recall, Jell-O was an invention of uh, of the man that that invented oh, the Tom right, Thumb, right? And uh, th- maybe that was one of the reasons I didn't do Jello. You should explain this reference that before we recorded this show, uh, you had researched. I, I don't even know what are we up to. Somewhere between nine and a dozen different topics, well, at least uh, more than a dozen different show ideas, and somehow I got caught in some emotional loop where I spent like hours reading about all this crazy stuff and I never chose a show. And I got here and was like, Ken, I just don't have a show. And you were like, well, you didn't do it? And I was like, no, I did it. I did it, I for did like, it too much. I did it for like a dozen shows and you were like, what? And then I went on to tell you about all these different And they just ideas. kept coming. You're yeah. like, I could do a show on the Errol Sea and Jell-O and hot air balloon crashes and Hindu measurements. And uh, unless you're just an amazing improv artist, you really did read up on a dozen different things and I, and without and preparing a single show. We actually considered doing a show where I just did five minutes on each of the things I'd read. I was like, let's do a show on writer's block. We've never done writer's block yeah. before. But I didn't want to, I didn't want to waste all that work. Uh, well, I'm sure all those topics will be cycling around to someday when you're in a, oh, yes. in a better place emotionally to discuss Jello oh, yes. or the RLC. I was ready to do a show on the coast already. And Let, let's fill the RLC with Jello. Solve two problems. Hey, hello. Um, I, Brian, uh, mentioned, Brian, I guess is a Baltimore native and mentioned the B&O Museum, the Baltimore and Ohio Museum. Have you ever been to the Baltimore Spine Railroad Museum? I have not. I haven't. I have a friend in Baltimore right now. I took her to the airport this morning on her way to Baltimore. So I could write her immediately and say, go to the railroad museum. B&O Museum. I mean, is it lauded in this email or is it? Chastised. Uh, no, he loves it. It was a big part of his chest. Speaking of kids going to museums, he was a big fan of it. I think the Tom Thumb is on display there. Whoa. Which is why. Must be a replica. Which is why he mentions it. Um, let me see. They surely took it apart to build stills. Or <laughs> I don't know. They have a page for it on their website. Uh, you can. I, get, uh, I t- think I looked at this. At, at a time, you could see it in operation there. I think I looked at this when I was recording the show or re- re- uh, researching the show, and I think it's a replica. Let me see. I think the original Tom Thumb was immediately turned into a trebuchet. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Uh, it was not preserved because it was just a prototype, but as early as 1892, somebody constructed a, a model of it. It was at a 1927 Baltimore Centennial 
I don't know if what's the centennial. Perhaps the city of Baltimore. The city of Baltimore existed before eighteen twenty seven. Okay, so maybe it's. Is 1827 the year of the Tom Thumb exhibition? Ooh. It's close, 1829. Maybe it's a centennial of the low of the the boiler that the went train. on to become the locomotive, or the invention of the. Could 1827 be the first British locomotive? Anyway, they constructed no. one of those, and it's still at the BNO. It would be earlier. Um, so Brian recommends visiting the BNO Museum. By the way, I still have this Viking tour running silently in my YouTube, and uh, there's still 25 minutes left. <laughs> um, he recommends. Oh, it's not really on display there, but the thing. Phone freaking. That was another one. Did I tell you? Yeah, you mentioned. Oh, that. I mentioned phone. Freaking. I I, th- I only have like half the list, but you mentioned a half dozen other things. Oh, all right, all right. There's there's at least half. Keep, keep shouting them out though. I think okay. it's I think it's good content. <laughs> okay, good, good. <laughs> Uh, Brian tells us the B&O Museum has not on display, but stored there, the locomotive that crashed in DC's Union Station in 1953. And I didn't know this story. Some huh? pas- some passenger and mail train, maybe this will be an omnibus. Sounds like it. It seems like you have a shortage of topics. So <laughs> a passenger and mail train failed to break heading into Union Station. So it just jumped the platform and plowed into the concourse, injuring 43 people. And what's interesting is it happened January 15th, 1953. I think the same... Week of Eisenhower's inauguration. Whoa. Um, I thought you were going to say the execution of Julius and Ethel yes, Rosenberg. Yes, it happened the exact second the Rosenbergs <laughs> were electrocuted, which is why the power went out and why the train jumped its... Wow, what a big crash we that We called was. it Stalin's Revenge. Yeah, so huge crowds were going to be pouring into Union Station that week, so they had to do these insane overnight repairs to try to get the place ready to go. I, think they, I wonder if they considered... I mean, you can't delay an inauguration constitutionally, but you could certainly change the party. Uh, anyway, that struck me as a pretty good omnibus idea. And he also wants you to know that you mentioned that uh, Cooper, uh, is that the Jello guy in the story? Mm-hmm. Opened a factory to make the first I-beams. Mm-hmm. He wants us to know that although they're technically I-beams, engineers call them W-beams. Why? Because civil engineers cannot read. They are illiterate and do not know the 26 letters of the alphabet. And so they, they look at it and they're like, I-beams? It's kind of like a... No, they, they, they look at the letter I and they're like, I don't know what that is. Turn it sideways, looks like a W. I guess it's got a wide flange. So, You've got a wide flange. <laughs> Your mom had a wide flange <laughs> when she had you. It's. I think. I wonder if he's implying that the W stands for wide. Uh, Brian, Engineers called I-beams W-beams? Why do the rest of us call them I-beams? Maybe it's like more like a... It's that a, we're dumb. Yeah, exactly. They, they got to show off that they're in the inner circle. There's a thing like that in um, entertainment where if you work in computer graphics for the movies, you do not call it CGI. You call it CG. Saying CGI is a, a, is a mark of what audiences Well, what's say. the I stand for in CGI? Imagery, maybe? Computer graphic image? Oh, yeah, maybe. Maybe people don't say that anymore. But you remember 10 years ago when I was all, oh, that. CGI, CGI. I don't like CGI Yoda. Yoda should be a puppet. I hate CGI. Have you been watching the um, the Lord of the Rings Show the TV show the new one. I have not. I was just having this conversation with my son yesterday. The CGI is pretty boss. The CG, you mean? Sorry, the siege is pretty <laughs> boss in the that show. The siege of Minas Tirith. It's really, it's really boss. Well, Amazon only paid, you know, three hundred million dollars or something to show you that. Yeah, it's uh, and at, you know, Jeff Bezos had to work for an hour and a half to to make that much money. At the end of every episode, you're like, whoa. In Not, a, spoiler alert. In a good way? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's a good show. My son sent me the nerdiest text about how, like, they have Cella Brimbor meeting or Kella Brimbor meeting 
and then some other guy who apparently is of the wrong era. Elendil. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Why is Ellen Deal hanging out with Kella Brimbor? And I'm like, please remove me from your <laughs> Silmarillion group chat. <laughs> there is a little bit of, uh, there is a little bit of like, wow, this is all happening pretty fast. But that's what you like about the first season of Game of Thrones. Well, yeah. Except, now I'm the one doing the callback to the show that hasn't aired yet. I know, but I that's, but an, that's an early November omnibus. As a as a, a a reader of the Silmarillion in the 1980s, I don't have exactly the I don't remember exactly everything perfectly, but I do have moments where I'm like, "Hey, wait a minute." I was never able to make head nor tail of the Silmarillion. I know it's like reading a hundred years of solitude, and maybe that's what. Oh, I like a hundred years of solitude. I'm I'm in the wrong Venn diagram of both of these. Uh, but both of them feel like the Talmud to me. I understand what you're saying. They're both intergenerational stories. Yeah. I mean, and Hundred Years Simon of Solitude begot uh, Simon begot, and in Hundred Years of Solitude, like all the characters have the same name. It's like right. Jose Antonio begot Jose Antonio, who yeah. begot Jose Antonio. Uh, I understand the challenges to that, but the uh, love in the time of cholera is such a you know such a sweeping uh, you know tear jerking epic. How do you how do you compare the two? But it all takes place within the same lifetime, unlike... Right. Unlike the... the, the, the freaking, I mean, it's in the title. Yeah, it's in the title. There it is. A hundred years. This is going to be a hundred years of solitude. And the Silmarillion is probably like a thousand years of... More than that. ...of boring elves doing stuff. Yeah, they're alive for a long time. Elves. Here's, here's my problem. I was reading this thing and I'm like... If this is a prequel to Lord of the Rings, I'm just going to read this till some character I like appears. They and never that, do. And that literally will not happen. <laughs> you can't read this being like... Okay. Where's well, Gandalf? Well, the guy called O'Loren on page 208 might be Gandalf. We got to check yeah. we got to check with the appendices. Did you read Infinite Jest? No. Did you read Gravity's Rainbow? Yes. Yes. We've talked about this. Oh, we have. But it was really just me plowing through so I could say I had read it. Yeah. It, so I have technically finished it in that my eyes have passed over every word. Could I tell you any of the plot points? You know me, I'm a slow reader. Now who's calling back to an episode that hasn't aired? Boy, people are going to love that November show when you're a slow reader. <laughs> I'm a slow reader, so I really slow read Gravity's Rainbow. I oh. mean, I like Pynchon a lot now. Maybe I should try it again. Let's do a Gravity's Rainbow book club. You know what? I challenge you to. How about that? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I find that my, my patience to read long novels, I used to just get on a plane like, oh, boy, I've got a new long novel to jump into. I know. And now my phone has just turned my brain into like Vienna sausage jelly. I know. It's terrible. And I really have to make myself read a book. Yeah. Because I'm an idiot now. Yeah, it's awful. Two different people have given me like, oh, you've got to read this book. Neither of them novels, unfortunately, because I guess I have a reputation now where I want to read. Mr. Nonfiction. Yeah, some, some book about whatever. And I've got these two books, and they just stare at me from the coffee table like, ugh, do I really have to read this book? Anytime the author puts PhD after their name on the cover of a book, Oof. you know it's going to be like, I don't want to read your thesis, dummy. I want to look at my phone. Entry 143.LK2104. Certificate number 28114. The Boots Theory. Did we get a lot of people that that uh, had strong opinions about the Boots Theory? Well, we, we had did. a lot of Pratchett fans who were so disappointed that we were not Terry Pratchett readers. Oh, there was that whole thread on the Facebook page of like, I can't believe that they aren't as huge a fan of this as me. And then the next person, me too. Well, they all found each other. Yeah. 
Oh, which is lovely. But those people are all having orgies now. Did you do the thing where you sometimes wade in on that discussion and, and do a post where you're like, yes, sorry we didn't know about your <laughs> dumb thing, signed Ken? Well, no, because I was the one in the show who had actually read a Terry Pratchett novel. Oh, right. But I think I think that was not enough to qualify me as one of the good ones. Because right. I read one of the co-written Neil Gaiman books or something. Uh, at some point during that show, you mentioned, I think we mentioned typewriter repair as a, you know, because we were talking about how the art of repair is being lost altogether due to planned obsolescence, et cetera, et cetera. You can see how that would relate. My Keurig that I've had, you know, admittedly for almost 10 years, it just completely fritzed out. And I've had the same coffee maker, like, like a Mr. Coffee, Mr. Coffee for 25 years. And it's still just blurk, 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 blurk does, you know, Zero problems. Things used to be simpler. But this Keurig, and it had, it's one of those where you look at the bottom and it says, no user serviceable parts. And so I went online and I bought a new one for whatever, less than $100. I thought you were Mr. I'm going to call a weird old, I'm going to call the weird old man from Toy Story 2 to my house to (laughs) to look at my Keurig through those weird uh, lens glasses. Normally I would do, except here's the thing. I need coffee tomorrow. (laughs) I don't need coffee. This is an emergency. Oh, and the crazy thing was, then I got a phone call the next morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, from a number I didn't recognize with an Idaho area code. And I was like, what? No. And then he called again at 10, leaving messages both times. And so I listened to the messages, and it went like this. Hello, my name is Gary, and I'm from a small town in Idaho called Kellogg. And I was like, I know Kellogg, Idaho, ding dong. And he's like, I got a strange charge or no, a strange letter from Walmart. Uh, and I need you to call me back. And I was like, what? No. And then the next message was like, is this, you know, John from, and he had my address. I need you to call me back. I called already at eight. No one's called me back. What kind of intrigue are you into here? I was like, what is going on? So I called Call. I was like, is this Gary? Oh, hello. Yes. Thank you for calling. I got this message from Walmart about a Keurig. I was like, I ordered it from Amazon. He's like, oh, so you've got one. <laughs> I said, yeah, it came in the mail this morning. And he was like, well, I'd sure love to have same day service out here in Kellogg. <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, but I mean, what is it? He was like, well, Walmart sent me an email about it. I said, it's got nothing to do with Walmart. He's like, wow, well, that's what I'm calling you about. What, what, who is he? He was also trying to buy one? No. He had. No, he just was sitting in his home in Kellogg. And he got copied on well, his emails? Yeah, well, putting put wax on his canoe. And he's like, well, I've got an e- email from Walmart about a Keurig. And it had your phone number on it. And so I'm calling you because it sounds very suspicious. And I was like, well, it does sound weird, I have to admit. And then he and I had a wonderful conversation. <laughs> you guys are now. I was like, what? You're now the godfather of his kids. And- <laughs> We're good friends. By the time we got off the phone, it was like, you know, next time I'm in Kellogg. You are going to love old age. You're going to love just walking into a room and finding some other guy that wants to talk about his prostate <laughs> or something. I need a diner. I need a local diner. I saw a couple of guys do it. At, where was I? I was at some uh, half price books, the one by South Center, maybe? And some yeah, guys I just go to that all the time. When are you in the, the South Center half price pa- Paging through the, the vinyl? Yeah. It might have been the Tacoma one. Now I can't remember. Do you do tours of half price books? Yeah, occasionally. Like, uh, what, what do they got that's new? You know, what's in it for me? Wow. I took like 90 books to them 
like this huge collection. I had a collection of Shakespeare that was like a, 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 the width of a wall. And they gave you $4.30. Yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. It was like, we can give you $42. It's <laughs> like, oh, man. But, you know, I know it goes to a good home. I just didn't re- realize you were. You, you didn't realize it was my home. Yeah. Just, there was just some elder. I'm, I'm, so I'm sitting paging through the vinyl, and then I'm looking through the comics. And some old guy is sitting at the entrance, and he just starts up a conversation with another similarly attired Old guy, I think they've both maybe lost their wives in the last 10 years, and they've both got the same kidney complaint. These guys are just having this, these guys are the best of friends talking about their gallstones. Right. Um, it, at full volume in the middle of half-price books. And I was like, I don't think I'm equipped for that kind of old age, but you sure are. Well, I know, but you're married. Like, you have your wife to bore the living crap out of. And hopefully of. she survives me. <laughs> 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 Why should I have to mourn? Uh, speaking of typewriter repair, as I'm sure we briefly were, uh, Dave originally from Bremerton wants us to know that Bremerton is a typewriter repair destination. What? Are you aware? I mean, I take all of my submarines to Bremerton to be repaired, but I had no idea they repair typewriters there. Uh, and I just realized the link he sent me didn't work, but there's, there's both a typewriter repair shop and I believe some kind of typewriter museum. Why are you saying typewriter like a four-syllable word? I think it's funnier. You don't think it's funnier? <laughs> typewriter. Typewriter. I mean, I could see all the Navy like engineers out there who are like, Do you think, oh, all, the, oh, you think all the clerks still have a typewriter? Yeah, I bought name? a house out here. What is there to do? I'm going to re- repair typewriters. I mean, this is from a couple of years ago, so I hope these places have survived the pandemic. But there is Bremerton Office Machine Company in business since 1947. Okay. Performing typewriter repairs, cleanings, ribbon replacement. No matter what you need, go see shop owner Paul Lundy, who inherited the store from his mentor and predecessor. I'm going to take my cursive typewriter over there and see if they can change the font. Do you have a cursive? Those, those typewriter cursive fonts are always so awful. I do have a cursive typewriter, and uh, I don't. I don't mind the font. It kind of actually looks like my handwriting. You can go to Typewriter Fever, uh, the passion project of Don, Bremerton's Don Feldman, a guy with a 600 typewriter collection. Typewriter his fever. wife asked him to sell a few, so he opened his own shop with an adjoining typewriter museum that has uh, all his typewriters on display and the QWERTY Cafe. Do you think this is still open? I'm very worried that this has been a COVID. Um, this has been a COVID casualty. It, is, it is currently listed, but at, fever. but as uh, a by appointment only. Uh, the cafe is by appointment only. <laughs> that doesn't maybe, seem like a maybe good. his curry got shipped to Kellogg, Kellogg, Ohio, accidentally. Oh, look at the typewriter museum! Oh, look at all those beautiful typewriters! I told Dave I now have one thing I want to do in the city of Bremerton. Uh, he and, sells mugs. Mike uh, is a huge Terry Pratchett fan uh, and loved to hear all the shout-outs to their hero, Sam Vimes, and his boots. Um, wait, why is he telling us this? Oh, because, you know, Terry Pratchett uh, at the end had Alzheimer's uh, and left behind uh, the, requir- the requirement that all his unfinished stories be destroyed. What? Uh, I he never had- understand that. It's very common, what do you I care? guess. You're, you're died. Maybe he believed in a in an afterlife on the back of a turtle, and he didn't want to look back and mm. see. Here's a list of authors I came up with once who all requested that their papers be destroyed on their desks: Edward Albee, Elizabeth Bishop, Emily Dickinson. Hmm. Maybe those two were in a relationship. Thomas Hardy, Franz Kafka, uh, famously 
his executor, his friend, uh, is it Max Broad? Is that right? Refused to burn the stuff. And the only reason we have any of Kafka's work is because his executor did a bad job. Is that right? Nabokov, he Pratchett, Philip Roth, Mark Twain. Yeah, I think most of his work had not been published during his lifetime, if memory serves. Mark Twain and Virgil, the legend goes, we would not have the Aeneid if Virgil had had his way and all his papers had been destroyed. The funny thing about um, the Pratchett case is that all his work was on a hard drive, so his agent made a big to-do about um, renting a steamroller, and the, the ceremonial steamroller, after Pratchett's death, ran over the hard drive, crushing all those uh, infant and abortive works into uh, into oblivion. But he kept them, oblivion. or that was they're actually gone? They're gone. That was the wow. lone copy, and uh, he publicly took care of it with a steamroller. He was not going to be a bad Kafka friend, good, good for... Good for literature, bad friend. I guess so. Um, what would you be if a friend was a like good Kafka friend? What if your friend is like, here, here's all my tapes. Um, you know, this is albums worth of work, but I don't want anybody to see any of them. And, I'd, I'd listen or, to it all and curate it and say, you didn't know what you're talking about. This is really good. I'd did. take out all the songs that were like the Jews. <laughs> I'd be like, no, those go in the hopper. But but uh, but you know, all these ones that are like really sweet. Yeah, I'd keep them. I'd put them out. So don't trust me with your after death destruction project. You'll be a bad friend because you you just care about the thing is world heritage. If you want them destroyed, destroy them. But the idea is, while you're alive, you might want to go back and work at them, and then one day a safe falls on you, oh, I see. and suddenly there's a bunch of crappy juvenilia sitting on a. Than a hard drive well, or something. What about all? I'm, I'm not talking about the guys that die of alcoholism at 50. What about all, you know, Kafka? How long did he live? I think he was young and had, uh, what do you people die of back then? Tuberculosis. Yeah, that's what you die of back then. Kafka died of, he died in a line in a government. Yeah, it was tuberculosis. Huh. He died in a line waiting for a government uh, bureaucrat to stamp a paper for him, probably. <laughs> he was only 39. 17. <laughs> Stefan is from South Africa. I don't know. What's the Afrikaans way to say Stefan? Stefan. Okay, Stefan. Um, enjoy but, the... he, uh, but he's from South Africa, so he can't drown. Although he's, that. he's originally from, is that true? South Africans can't drown? No, they can't drown. It's balding. Interestingly. Uh, he's currently living in Everson, Washington, but he's from South Africa. Well, there's a lot of things going off around here. What's happening right now? If this was not an addenda show... We would stop. <laughs> we would stop. But because this is our, for our loyal friends only. Um, they, love, they love the peek behind the curtain. Uh, and they love to know that you live in a high crime neighborhood. <laughs> he wants us to know the South African saying, good, 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 good is door cop. Good cop is door cop. Which means cheap buy is expensive buy. Yes. In other words, it's, this, you know, it's the same as the Pratchett buy cheap, buy twice thing. I have found it so true that if I had just gone for the more expensive well-made item, it would have lasted much longer. So let's all, next time we're in South Africa, remember, good cope is dur cope. Good cope is dur cope. Truer words never spoken. Yeah, let ope dremples. What? That means slow down their bumps in the road. Let ope. I mean, that is dremples. an important thing to know in Africa, I guess. Yeah. Also, dremples. Entry 436.NU2021. Certificate number 51829. Exclaves. Wait, did we do this on the last addenda show? Well, I don't know. Now I can't you're, remember. You're the only one that knows. I'm the only one that keeps a list.
Um, what was it? Let's say we didn't. We had a couple of people write in from Point Roberts or near Point Roberts. Does oh, this ring a bell? No, I don't think I don't think we talked about that. Greg um, grew up right on the Sawasan side. I guess that's the name of the. I probably said it wrong. The town right across the BC border, um, but the you know across the street from his house was Point Roberts. It was was the United States of America. Right um, across the street. Yeah, literally. I guess there's places where. The border runs down the, the border runs down the middle of the street with no border patrol. Interesting. Uh, he uh, used to work on the U.S. side as a kid. Across the line is apparently the local phrase. Um, borrowed a motor scooter. Wait, borrowed a motor scooter to chop veggies. There's got to be a better way to chop veggies than with the than with the motor of a of a Vespa. This whole thing just sounds more and more suspect. I think he. I think at first he chopped the veggies. Then he used the motor scooter to bust dishes. To a little bistro. There's got to be a better way to bust dishes. Than Maybe he commuted to this job. I'm now thinking he commuted to this job. On a scooter. On a scooter. When he arrived at the bistro, he would chop the veggies, bust the dishes. He says income tax season was a little more challenging, of course, because he's got U.S. earned income. Oh, yeah. From a U.S. employer on the other side of the border. He reminded me something I had not thought of, which is Point Roberts. We actually, the first time we talked about it was one of the very first shows, Pig War. Oh, of course. So we've now done Point Roberts twice on the show. We also heard from... Uh, Andrew, who still lives in Sawasan, and his house is also on the border of Point Roberts. It would be funny if he now lives in Greg's childhood home. There's a ditch in my backyard, he says, that I have to vigilantly make sure my kids never cross. What? Wow, because he's... he's Because once they cross into America, they'll never want to come back? Anti-American sentiment? No, no, no. They'll get over on the other side and be like, na 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 sorry, Dad. Is he worried that they'll just start eating junk food and listening to Toby Keith? If they if they cross this ditch, I just want to see what that vigilance looks like. <laughs> does he just sit at the Let kitchen know, sink, Andrew. staring out the window? Like, Do you, does he, are you holding a shotgun at the time? Uh, we apparently at one point we mentioned a water dispute back there where the the Canadian side, I guess, shut off the water because of some kind of rent issue, right? Um, but he says the water that is now delivered there comes through a right of way next to his house, so he now controls. He has access. To all this water coming from Lake Capilano in North Vancouver all the way down to Point Roberts. He could build a dam, flood Luxor, <laughs> or the equivalent. Can you flood Point Roberts? It's a peninsula. It's very difficult to flood a peninsula, which is already at sea level. Yeah, I guess so. Well, you could just dig that ditch a little deeper, fill it with water, and, and make it an island. He could he could persuade the population of Point Roberts to join him in the ditch and then flood them. Mm. He could be like, hey, I lost a, a, a toonie down here. And then trick them, trick them uh, into into no, tuna hunting. All the Americans would be like, "That's worth seventy five cents. <laughs> That's not worth getting on my hands and knees." But what a nice guy! He teaches at the University of BC, and he says, "Here's my phone number. If you're ever in Point Roberts, I'll show you around." Nice. The town of Sawasan per capita appears to be huge, huge omnibus fans. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, the uh, BC is part of Cascadia, part of the Ecotopia. I think I think we would be kings of Ecotopia. When, when the secession happens. Uh, Jeff was the one who requested the Exclaves show. Okay. And uh, he enjoyed when we talked about Barl Hertog and Barl Nassau on the Belgian-Dutch border because that was his original topic. Oh. He was going to suggest it as a Barl Hertog show. Um, he was the one that sent in the Life magazines about, uh, you know, Omar Bradley. And we... Love it. Our, our, our kids were so into those Omar Bradley articles that we didn't... We never got a chance to read them ourselves. Yeah. Um, because I think as we mentioned before, teens just love 
Omar Bradley. They do. They're, They're like, like Slay General Bradley. Come on, we, why, 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 why aren't uh, more things named for him? We stand a five star king. Uh, here are some addenda that he mentions. We did not talk about the Kentucky Bend. Uh, Kentucky Bend. I've written. A, I wrote a thing about all these for um, one of your books, right? I think at some point I started writing for some travel company. I think it was Condé Nast Traveler. I had a little column for them. I guess on the uh, the Kentucky-Tennessee border is set by law at 36 degrees, 30 minutes north, but the Mississippi River did a little oxbow, did a little oxbow at some point, and so now there's an isolated bit of whatever South Tennessee um, south of the, of the river there where it's not supposed to be. Um, so you have to go through another state to get to it by land. But the border between Kentucky and Missouri is defined as the river. So I can't follow this anymore. Directly across the river from this enclave, there's a bit of land that is north of the river, but south of 36 degrees, 30 minutes latitude. You'd think that it would belong to Tennessee, such that there are matching double enclaves, but no, it belongs to Missouri. What? Here's my Wait, I just crossed this. And you missed all the sights. Well, I I just didn't. I I just stayed on the road and went across a couple of bridges. I guess I probably didn't go into the the weird blob of Kentucky. Although I, maybe I did. He mentioned the fact that um, Navajo Nation uh, is mostly contiguous, but has a lot of little enclaves uh, or exclaves on the mostly on the New Mexico side of the border. And then inside the Navajo Nation, there's the Hopi Reservation. Um, including a separate part, which is an exclave of the larger, all within Navajo Nation, all within Arizona. But he didn't mention my favorite thing about this, which is that Arizona does not observe daylight savings time. Right. Did we say this on the show? The Navajo Nation does, but the Hopi do not, which means that the Navajo Nation forms a donut of daylight savings time observation. Um, but it's it's an hour, you know, during the summer, it's an hour earlier both inside and outside its borders. Um, he also wants us to know that there's an Omar Bradley connection to exclaves, <laughs> something to do with it. Nice. Something to do with the pincer movement around the Falaise pocket to surround the German yes, south of Cannes. Yes, the Falaise pocket. See, now you're excited yeah, that, that, that you know the Germans were surrounded south of Cannes. So, uh, you know, the Falaise pocket comes up a lot in the Ukraine war. <laughs> oh, it does. Yeah. I, see, I'm on the wrong part of the internet or possibly the right part of the internet. No, I crossed the Mississippi at its juncture with the Ohio River near Cairo, which is Cairo, Cairo, which is a similar sort of go across a bridge, go across a little finger, go across another bridge, but not, and that's up by Mound City. But you know, I've had on my list of topics for a long time, the New Madrid earthquakes. Madrid. What, is it really? I think so. New Madrid. I just assume that all these Midwestern cities, they just say the ancient city wrong. Yeah. They're like, yeah, I live in Paris, Ohio. In, in Cairo and New Madrid. But yeah, the New Madrid earthquake uh, where the Mississippi ran backwards. But I, but now I've given away the punchline. Uncle Tupelo uh, pronounced it New Madrid. So New I'm, Madrid. I'm going to okay. go with that. Okay. Uh, I think it's a Jay Farr song. Which lends almost certainly probably more credibility. Did I ever tell you about the tour I did with Jay Farrar? No, he's a wonderful man. That's nice to know. Yeah, Ooh, weird. He does not come off well in Jeff Tweedy's book, but if he were to write a book, maybe the reverse would be true. I mean, Jeff Tweedy, nice guy. Ooh, I've hung out with him. Not from that. Not from that movie. I wouldn't say. 
Seems hard to work with if your name is Jay. Yes. That's what we've learned there from, we go. from studying his career. There we go. But he's got a lovely normal family um, for a rock star. So well, I, I always admire that. You know, a normal family can normalize a guy. I've got a normal family and it's normalized me a lot. Are you saying that um, he could have been weird before the normal family? I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was saying to somebody the other day that I had become tame and they said, you are not tame. And I said, I am tame. Why are you sticking up for your own tameness? Well, I just, I feel a lot tamer, but I don't know. Do I seem tame? Well, I didn't know you before. I didn't know you when you were a, oh, yeah. a, a touring rock musician. Right. Really. But so, I mean, just generally compared to the average, I seem pretty tame, right? I hang out with Jeopardy people all the time. I'm the wrong person to ask. Oh yeah, I guess that's right. In, in that world, look out. In that world, you're Gene Simmons, but <laughs> nobody ever, nobody's biting the head off bats on Jeopardy, you know? Uh, we heard from Jim, who is a friend of Ramon. Okay. Ramon is the Chilean guy who... Um, who writes us occasionally, sends us postcards. I think he's the oh, one yeah. who, I think he's maybe the one who thought we were on the wrong side of the, uh, of the protest dogs. Right. Maybe Jim's not, or maybe Ramon's not an Allende guy. I don't know. But Jim, uh, we mentioned Nakchivan, the, as the Azerbaijani, uh, exclave at some point, which is kind of interesting because it's totally separate from Azerbaijan, but it's actually. Armenia is in there somewhere. It's, yeah, it's a very disputed area of the world. Uh, maybe Iran's in the way. I can't remember. Turkey, Armenia's there too, but uh, it's it's kind of the ancestral home of the current Azeri dictator, but also their national epic, and it's where like Mount Ararat is said to be. We were discussing the many places that Noah's Ark could be. Anyway, so it's like kind of this ancestral Azeri homeland, even though it's basically Alaska. You know, it's an outland to them. And Jim says he asked an Azeri friend once about Nakhchivan, if you're in Azerbaijan, how do you get there? And he said, if you're... Flying carpet. (laughs) That's racist. (laughs) So no. (laughs) It's, uh, he said that uh, if you're a trucker, there's a longer land route that bypasses Armenia entirely. Oh. You, You go through Iran instead. It's much longer, but it avoids the ideological problems of, you know, having to cross through Armenia. Right. Then they probably wouldn't let you anyway. Um, but the Azeri government subsidizes cheap flights, like $30 flights between the two. So there's basically 15 minutes. There's basically an air corridor of Ryan, Ryan air type discount airlines going over Iranian airspace between. Oh, they don't fly over Armenia. They're blocked from. Yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe Azeri planes cannot go over Armenia. I don't know. We're going to hear from angry Armenians at this point. (sighs) Get in line. Uh, no, they've they've had a lot of terrible things happen to them. Absolutely. Armenians should be angry. I totally get it. Um, My friend John Kazanjian is Armenian. <laughs> is Armenian? Wow! And he has a he has a picture on his wall of his father and grandfather with their rifles in Armenia. And boy, I get an earful. And James Adomian, the the, the comedian, uh, comedian, the, the Trump guy. Yeah, he's well. He's always on there yelling about Armenia because he's. Oh Armenian no, he's not Trump. He's he's, he's Bernie. Trump. Yeah, he's Bernie. He's Bernie. It's Anthony. What's Bernie his name? Yeller. Anthony. Atum. His name also is uh, not Armenian, but similarly uh, ethnically uh, suggestive. But I can't remember what it is. Atom Chuck. Atom Chuck. That can't be right. That's not a name. I don't uh, follow any comedians anymore. I'm just on social media 
for the wars. It makes you happier, actually. <sighs> Who's going to be more sensible? Uh, uh, a war nerd reading Jane's or a stand-up comedian? <laughs> Those are the two. Those are the two most stable types of people on earth. <laughs> Entry seven three nine dot mt two two one zero. Certificate number three two five one one. Luke and Laura. This has little or nothing to do with Luke and Laura, but I think we were Fair talking enough. about your latchkey childhood. Yeah, and you weren't allowed to watch. Oh no, you watched soaps with your caretaker because you were always trying to light the house on fire. Yes, is that right? Right. Uh, Thor wrote in, Tor, I guess, from Sweden, to say that this morning on Swedish radio, they spoke to a researcher who says, nowadays, almost no forest fires are linked to kids playing around with fire anymore. What happened? Uh, at one point, like, tw- 30 years ago, maybe 12% of forest fires were kids playing. Can you guess? Can you guess why? <sighs> Video games. <laughs> yeah, they're all, they're all playing World of Warcraft. Uh... Their par- Kids today have never been taught how to use matches. Their parents don't smoke anymore. Oh. The decline in smoking rates have also been a, decl- a tragic decline in kids fooling around with matches and lighters. There aren't matches. So they kids are not playing with fire. I assumed it was going to be something where the number of fires caused by other things have risen, have, have skyrocketed right. so that the kids can't keep up. But wait, it's absolutely true. There were matches everywhere. And lighters. And there are none now. You think there'd be some effect of kids now treating them as forbidden fruit, like like my like my firebug kid does. Like yeah, but oh, how could matches. they even find them? Exactly. Do you exactly. have matches in your house? I guess in a yeah, drawer. For, yeah, in the drawer in the kitchen for if a pilot light doesn't light. Yeah. Or, or something. Or, used, or to light a candle. I used to have one of those pickle jars, mason jar that was like three feet tall, and it was just full of bic lighters, and it was because, and I'm ashamed to say it, uh. I never bought a Bic lighter in my life. I was just one of those guys who was like, hey, can I borrow your lighter to light this cigarette? And then I would put it in my pocket. And it was completely unintended. I was not, I didn't mean to steal people's, people's lighters, but I did. I stole so many lighters. It's not too late, John, to make, isn't should this be one of your steps? You, you got to make some go, reparations. Go find all of the smokers. I stole their lighters. Or no, go out and find smokers yeah. and hand each one a half full Bic lighter. Does does that kind of pay it forward reparation uh, have any value in a in a AA type scenario? I think so. It's got to right. I can't actually make amends to the person because they presumably don't smoke anymore either. And how could I even find them? Just some rando. I was like, can I borrow your Bic lighter? But to go find other randos? Hey, you're, you look like you're smoking and you're patting your pockets and you can't find a lighter. Here's a lighter. Walk the streets of Seattle looking for someone with a cigarette hanging out of their mouth and patting their pockets in a showy manner. That was me. Uh, I mean, I'm sure a lot of cases, of, this is a little dark, but in a lot of amends making cases, maybe the, the, the parent or whoever it is is no longer with us. How does one right. make amends in a case like that? <sighs> yeah, I think you just I pay it forward. Sounds good to me. Find another... Find an elderly person on the street with a wayward kid and be like, hey, uh, I'll come hang out at your house. Let's watch General Hospital. Now, I wonder if in Sweden the same is true as is here in Washington where kids starting forest fires with matches has gone down but has been replaced with lightning storms due right. to climate change. Right. So there's, or, or negligent utility companies. So there's three times as many forest fires as there ever were before. Yeah, I'm not sure if uh, – I mean – a lot of the problem with the West is just so many acres of tinder dry of dry forest. Yeah. Whereas 
you know, Scandinavia just by virtue of size has less untouched forest. No, all of northern Scandinavia is just untouched forest full of gnomes. Remember the Trump era stuff about how they used to rake their forests? Do you remember this? Finland was always raking its forests and Trump decided we just needed more rakes. Oh, we did. That was our problem. Yes. We had forest fires because we had we didn't have enough rakes. Yeah, we had left a lot of kindling sitting around. That's true, though. The Native Americans eat every part of the buffalo, and they let their forests just burn periodically. Well, yeah, not a, some of it is just pent-up demand because we extinguished fires, what, disproportionately, more than the ecosystem would demand for the century. But Pen, then Pent-up demand on the part of the ecosystem? On the part of fire. Yeah, right. Fire, I've learned from Disney movies, forest fire is an anthropomorphic force that just loves to to burn through trees and stuff. Yeah. Uh, Rawr. Uh, but it's also, yeah, it's a hotter, drier west, unfortunately. That's a great indie rock album title. The Hotter, Drier West? Yeah, it sounds like a Modest Mouse record. It could be a band. The Hotter, Drier West. Could the West. Hotter, Drier West open for the Long Winters, or would you? Or, mm. would, would they just melt you? Well, I'd let them open for us, yeah. Entry 014.HG0105. Certificate number 29414. Adbusters. This is very funny to me. We were talking about the roots of the Adbusters uh, movement and the Situationists uh, of the, you know, what, mid, I guess the, what, the 70s? What's the time frame there? Um, and I asked whether they had zines, and you said, no, it was too early for zines. Listener Jesse writes in to say that there was a British situationist named Larry Law who, in the late 1970s, published a very What's equivalent to, I mean, it was, I mean, he would have considered it a, I don't know, a newsletter or a tract or something. Right. But it basically leveraged the look and feel and technology of what uh, rock fans slightly later would recognize as a zine called Spectacular Times. Law called them pocketbooks, but um, they're just clippings of articles, handwritten text by him, stick figure illustrations and cartoons. They're very funny, lots of quotes. So they're kind of laid out in a way that looks very familiar to anyone who's actually published or read a zine. Uh, the originals, Jesse says, are rare, but there are scans available on an internet archive called libcom.org, where you can see all 14 issues of the Spectacular Times. Hmm. Um, from number four, Fin de Spectacle, all the way up to number 14, Bigger Cages and Longer Chains. I'm trying to, let's see, how big are these? It had never occurred to me that George Meyer's Army Man was an early zine, right? Yeah. Were there there other comedy zines? I mean, that's a legendary one now just because it's super rare. He told me once that he had a fan reach out and be like, could you send me? And he was like, sure, I've got a couple copies. So he just sends some guy who found his address these rare copies of Army Man. That are now worth $10,000 each. And I think the guy like either eBayed them or never responded. His takeaway was like, never do anything nice. Because... <laughs> so let's see, I'm looking at issue, I'm looking at the final issue of Spectacular Times. It's got some people at some kind of nuclear disarmament um, rally, but he's added speech balloons saying, if we all hold hands and sing, will they really get rid of nuclear weapons? And her companion says, of course they will. And the rich will probably give away all their money, too, says some guy in a Castro beard. Man, he really zinged the demonstrators. 
Oh, and here's an ad for um, somebody trying to make money off of the peace sweater. At hundreds of places all over Britain, people will be making money for peace. And he crosses out the four and says, making money out of peace. Basically satirizing the uh, the co-opting of the of activism and counterculture movements by Madison Avenue. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's handwritten. He's got very good handwriting, Larry Law. So if you're interested in these... Was Larry Law a crank? Uh, What's the final verdict? I mean, it doesn't... Did he go on to become a member of parliament, or is he living in a tree? I don't know what happened to Larry Law. Uh, I'm, uh, the, the zine doesn't look like a crazy Unabomber kind of a manifesto. It, it seems actually pretty cannily designed for um, people trying to understand the situationist movement. Maybe it's a fake name. Hmm. Yeah, right. Pen name. Like well, Billboard. I mean, it's got, he's got Larry Law. I mean, it's, it's um, alliterative like a superhero, plus it's got law in it. Yeah, maybe he's not real. So, Larry Law, if you're listening, please tell us what happened to you. Did you eventually sell out? How to go, etc. Entry 817.EX2307. Certificate number 34239. The murder of Herbert Lee. I mean, this was a show about one particular uh, murder in particular, but just in general about all the civil rights martyrs whose names are, you know, not erased, but but not as well covered in history as, right. you know, Emmett your, your Emmett Till's and your, uh, your Dr. King's. Um, this was just such a bizarre one because it was a state legislator shooting a childhood, a black childhood friend in broad daylight and never facing prosecution because that's how the South worked at the time. Um, and to some degree, uh, might still, but we got a note from a listener named Pat, um, who says, I've been a listener from the start and this was the best episode so far. Um, I'm an old baby boomer from new England. Okay. So I, you know, I don't imagine our typical listener as being a Jessica Fletcher in Cabot Cove, Maine, kind of a, do you not NPR lady? But that's kind of nice, right? Oh, I always I always picture omnibus listeners sitting in Vermont in a house that was owned by their great 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 grandparents, and is and, haunted by pilgrims. Yeah, and all of their trees out back have buckets pinned to the sides, and their and the wind gets in through the windowsills. You know, as an actual as somebody who actually experienced that generation in the civil rights struggle contemporaneously, albeit from New England, she had kind of an interesting note that I guess I had not thought that much about. She says, the first I ever heard of racial problems was on TV, seeing the police dogs and fire hoses being used on citizens in the South. I thought she was going to say, up with people, but yes. I thought she was going to say it was listening to our podcast. Oh, was right. The, was the first she heard of the Civil <laughs> Wait Rights Wait a minute, movement. what? That never happens up here. And I mean, this is not a novel historical take, that television was a lot of what convinced the, you know, the images of, uh, of the fire hoses and the dogs and bull, who's the awful sheriff bull. Uh, all I can think of is bull Tannen from night court. And I'm bull sure Durham. that's not right. Uh, yeah. The awful sheriff bull Durham, um, the, the bull Connor, that these were the kind of things where you really couldn't fence it anymore. You know, really the good and evil is pretty stark once you see the, the video and, um, and the civil rights movement leaders knew it and played up to it and made sure that footage was available and they were on, Cameron not inciting riot, but, you know, 
just being on the receiving end of this. You know, it was really the the victory of nonviolence was people being able to see the TV footage. But it's interesting to imagine, uh, you know, that's what converted tens of millions of people in yeah. white America. You know, well, it's how the Vietnam War, and that's the thing. The caskets. I was thinking about the same thing. Those. The images of the caskets, probably, right, is what proverbially... Well, yeah, and the, just the, I don't know, just the nightly uh, napalm strikes and my lay masses, massacres. I mean, it's such a difference from radio. You know, right. if you hear, hey, there's a disturbance in Montgomery again, your average white American in 1960 could be like, well, I wish those troublemakers would just can it. But you see the dogs and the fire hoses. And, and suddenly there's a moral character to like, it. Say what now? And then the visceral impact of actually seeing the, the volume of caskets coming home, yeah. you know, has the same effect. I mean, it makes you wonder which, you know, what happens in a version of the civil rights movement that doesn't have TV or what happens in a version of World War II that does, um, you know. Well, what happens in a civil rights movement that doesn't have TV is America in the 20s. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, that's the whole point of the a lot of the stuff we talked about, the Equal Justice Initiative and all the, I guess, a project. We had a listener write in saying that um, she uh, is a big fan of EJI, and uh, she actually, they have a project where they're trying to get Earth, you know, like a, a, a jar, a sample of soil from every place in America that had a lynching, every county in America that had a lynching. Whoa. And that she was instrumental in getting them, you know, their lynching soil from Minnesota or whatever the site was that was... Um, Somebody just walked in here with a with tiny a, pumpkin. With a baby pumpkin. Was there a pumpkin patch trip today? No. It's from the store. From the store. You I, went to the store and that was what you came home with, a tiny pumpkin? Are you going to carve it? She is a perfect pumpkin. I didn't know we gendered our pumpkins now. It, it's a, this one does. It's a Jill a lantern. Yeah. Uh, she's a cute little pumpkin, too. She's a very cute little pumpkin. Uh, and now making an omnibus cameo for the first time. Yeah, although she spoke sotto voce, so. She, she did not want to be on the show. No. And I think that's fair enough. Uh, what were we saying? Oh, right. And so. Uh, all the yeah, exactly. The, these kind of widespread atrocities happened all over the country for decades. Yeah, and the Oklahoma City uh, chaos. You know that. Oh, would, the the you mean the the what, burning the Tulsa, of the, Tulsa? Oh, that's right. Tulsa, the Tul yeah. Tulsa riots and Black Wall Street and yeah. so on. Uh, I think like I was an adult when I knew the story of the Tulsa riots. Yeah, me too. Like not till my late twenties, early thirties. It was super duper paved over. Yeah, because it's. <laughs> Such an abomination. But, you know, that could, if that had happened in the 50s, yeah, it would have been on television. And, uh, so for all the terrible things you can say about the, the television film everything era, you know, now we know about all the, and the, the atrocities still happen once a month, but, you know, now there's video and outcry. And at least it's not, at least it's not, you know, it can't be ignored by 90% of the country. Well, except it, is ignored by the by ninety percent of the country because the problem is the problem with us who are v online who are extremely online is that we think everybody is extremely online but that's not true so it depends on who your fifty Facebook friends are whether you ever see that stuff chances yeah. are you don't apparently Kanye still thinks George Floyd was on fentanyl even though that was you know an internet thing that got debunked for the rest of us months ago but. 
Hard to on, know. On his corner of Facebook, not so much. Exactly. How, how to understand Kanye looking at Facebook. That's just one of those, like, will I ever be able to picture that completely? Like, him getting... Where does he get his news? It's coming from somewhere. You think he would have a, a fancier, nicer version of Facebook than we do. Yeah. There'd be someone in a white suit that was like, Mr. Yee, sir, here is... Or yay. How does he pronounce that? Yee? I mean, Ye would be from Kanye. Ye would be from Yeezy. Yeah. Probably Ye, right? Yeah, maybe Yeah. A third, a third vowel. Um, yeah. Oh, you would. He, he. You would imagine he has bespoke news, but apparently no. Or maybe it's bespoke from the from one source. <laughs> he should have his. Yeah, he has a one. He has a Kanye only social media site just for right. him called YeezyTotMe.com. And now a special feature. People with questions and comments about prior addenda shows. Uh, on last month's addenda show, neither of us knew what the demonym was for a person from Anchorage, Alaska. Right, because there there isn't one. There can't be one. Uh, apparently, uh, the internet says it's Anchorageites, but you're saying nobody up there says that. I mean, I think if I think halfway through it, you would be like, "I'm an Anchorage." I'm from Anchorage. For that very that's reason, what we all say. Uh, I guess there's been a movement afoot to say Anchoriginals. Oh, that's wrong. You don't like the gimmick? No, you're not an Anchoriginal. <laughs> no. It that's defi- terrible. It definitely puts one up over new arrivals who are not Anchoriginals. Yeah, who but. Who are Anchor transplants, Anchor babies. I mean, the problem with Anchorage <laughs> is it's like all big cities, there are a lot of transplants there. Mm-hmm. Like to have been born in Anchorage is a. Source of pride for people who have been born in Anchorage. So you don't think the others should be Anchor Originals? Well, no. And also, it's a point of pride for them, but it's not really anything to be proud of, born in Anchorage. Kathy wrote in that um, uh, she suggests Anchorageables. Oh, that's not bad. That's pretty good, That right? kind of has, that. there's a ring of truth to that. Uh, we also asked, I can't remember what, in what context this came up, but we were asking about effectively the, what's the strong form of what linguists call the Saper-Whorf hypothesis, which is the degree to, I know, I know what it was, the degree to which uh, the language you speak affects your thinking patterns. Right. And in particular, I think you were insisting that languages that have masculine and feminine forms for nouns, that have gender in their, in their nouns and other parts of speech, um, that would actually affect the way you thought about objects. You would imbue them like the pumpkin we just saw with a certain kind of uh, gendered quality. And I said, ah, in my experience, people who speak romance knowledge languages say no, they don't even think about that kind of a thing. Um, But we got, I believe, the same link from two different listeners, Megan and Joshua, both referred us to the work of a Stanford psychologist named Lara Boroditsky, who has done experiments on this. And the example that often gets used in this research, or at least the two people pointed out, was, uh, I think it must be what Boroditsky often mentions, a bridge that opened in the south of France in 2004, the tallest bridge in the world, the Viaduc de Milo. I don't know how you'd say that. German newspapers talked about its elegance, its lightness, its breathtaking beauty, because in German it would be uh, uh, die Brücke. I guess it would be feminine. I don't know what, what's the which is the feminine definite article. Die das Brücke. 
Das, maybe das. Um, whereas in France, everybody talks about its heft and power. They call it an immense concrete giant because there it's le pont. It's a masculine noun. Interesting. I mean, so this is more of an anecdote than data. Right. But what she takes away from it is that German speakers see bridges as light and graceful and traditionally feminine. In France, they're big, chunky uh, males. Big, chunky males. They're, they're masculine. Um, and she has other cases where, you know, if you compare Germans to Spaniards on keys, whether they're uh, uh, la llave or der, no, der is neuter, die Schlüssel, whichever the thing is. Um, anyway, in German, keys are masculine. So keys, what do you mean? Like keys on a keychain to oh, open a door. Oh, okay. Like so, they they would they tend to emphasize their hardness, their jaggedness, or whatever. Whereas in Spain, using the female gender, feminine gender and pronoun, they're more likely to see them as small, emphasize their smallness, their grace and elegance, and so forth. You would think if there was one thing that was going to be gendered, a key would be male and a lock would be female. That's a fair point. Maybe that's why it's such a strong example. Despite right. the obvious penetrative nature of the object, all it takes is a feminine pronoun, and suddenly... You're like, oh, my delicate little keys. In 85% of artistic depictions of death or victory, uh, the gender of the concept follows the language. In other words, the physical personification will be a man in language where it's L-death or L-victory. Whereas it'll be a woman if it's La Death or La Victoria. You know, death is a male in German, death is a female in Russia. Or that could just could be because Russian women are always trying to murder you. Right, beating up their much smaller husbands. Victory is usually portrayed as a female in English and American culture. And I guess it's probably La Victoire in French, I guess. And death is... Presumably always male. You don't think of death as a female, do you? You'd have to be like a Sandman fan. You'd have to be a goth to think of death as a female. I think that's the that's kind of the twist. What if it was a what if it was a gentle woman instead of the the foreboding right. man we always imagine? Right. I really liked her on that Sandman TV show. Oh, did you watch that? I did. I think she's really good. I like that actress. Yeah, I did. I liked her too. She, Wanted to spend more time with her. I saw her on The Good Place, even though she was death. Well, she'll be back. I think. Um, there are other ex- other kind of laboratory examples of this, or how how good people are at remembering the the colors of objects if the if that um, is a distinct word in their language. Oh, in languages that merge two colors, people actually have a harder time remembering what the color is of the object they saw. This is the blue green problem. Exactly. Yeah. Although I think they did it with um, languages that had distinct words for light blue and dark blue, which Russia does, Goluboy and Sinli, or something like that. Um, here's inter- here's an interesting one. Korean uses uh, a. Let's see. Oh, they have two prepositions for in. One for when something is in something snugly, like a letter fitting in an envelope. Another version of in for like if you set uh, a piece of fruit in a bowl. Um, because their language has that distinction, they are better at gauging the tightness of fit. I don't know how you do this test, and I mm-hmm. hope it's. I hope it's not sexual, mm. but uh, then uh, that an English speaker would be just by seeing a visual. The Korean brain is somehow better attuned, and there's similar things with counting numbers. It's like a tonal language. 
it has better you know, people that speak a tonal language have are more likely to have perfect pitch. Oh yeah, that's true. Although there, that would be a physiological process. Here, actually, something cognitively appears to be happening where the person spends more time or more attention on the degree of of tightness in an, in a in relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, Aboriginals that have compass directions instead of right and left are better at gauging compass directions, as you might imagine. Um, people just have a better memory for the things that are specific in their language. And apparently this does not prove the Saper-Whorf hypothesis. I wasn't wrong that the strong form of the Saper-Whorf hypothesis, which is generally that, you know, language is everything, that linguistics is your cognitive destiny. That's not true. But depending on how you phrase the weaker form, like it influences how you think, I guess there's little doubt now that, that there's plenty of examples of that, including gender. So... I'm vindicated. You are cur- Megan Again. and Megan and Joshua have supported you. Thank you, Megan and Joshua. So, Ken, give me an update on our friendly friend, our little pal, the rambunctious Esowet. Uh, Esowet has a littler buddy. Esowet's getting big now, and he has a littler buddy named Bondeni. I think he's come up before. Yeah. And we have uh, speculated on who's a bad influence on whom. He's got a little friend, a little familiar. Bondeni's more unpredictable, gentle some days, mischievous others. But on most days, Esawet and Bondeni are inseparable and are always engaging in various kinds of greeting, wrestling, challenging games. Because, you know, they're going to be bull elephants some days. And this is how they, what, feel their oats? That can't be the expression. They don't have oats there, do they? Well, you don't. Do you feel your oats? That, that no, can't be no. Right. Sow your oats. No, you, you. You sow your wild oats. No, but you do. You you feel your oats. Is it like a farmer lovingly rubbing his hand over a stalk of grain, like Russell Crowe does in Gladiator? He's. Except, no, I mean, I feel. I think feeling one's oats is like like feeling jazzed. Yeah, but wh- why oats? Because they like of all the oh, foods. Because once you eat your oats, then you're a. Sp- then you're uh, like a sprightly horse. Oh, a horse that has eaten his yeah. or her oats now, and is now then, is feeling them. That makes me, I was picturing on a human eating a bowl of Cheerios or oat bran or something. And then getting up in the morning and studying I mean, when studying I, eat, when I eat a bowl of crackle and oat bran, I'm ready to go. Oh, yeah? But I'm an elderly person. You don't eat breakfast, though. You're, you're, I don't. No. But I used to eat crackle and oat bran in the middle of the day, and then it turned out that's incredibly unhealthy. Like I was eating a heaping bowl of crackle and oat bran because I was like, oat bran, that's good for you. And it turns out, yes, but it's also like at the quantities I was eating, it was like 1400 calories yeah. of cereal. I used <laughs> and I to should not have been doing that. Eat a bowl of cereal every day. It was um, total. Total had all the vitamins and minerals you needed. It's right in the name. Yeah. But I can't find it anymore. Can, have, do you know where you can find total? It's total not in gone? the grocery stores. Oh, I didn't know. I hear product 49 got discontinued. Wait, no, product 19. That's what it is. Product 19 got discontinued. Is that something that we need to save for an episode? Yes, because how can it be product 19? What were the other 18 products? Gasoline, (laughs) cheese. All the other things that Kellogg's had in the lab. Uh, Esuit ran around playfully back-kicking his friends as he would charge browsing locations. Hmm. I've never seen an elephant back-kick, but wow. I mean, that's that's something you want to stay out of the way of. Bondeni and Esuit are the best playmates. It's very rare they go a day without challenging each other. This morning, they engaged each other in a strength-testing match as soon as they came out of the stockades. Wow. What, how do you think elephants do strength-testing? 
they go forehead to forehead and they try and push one another over a line that they've drawn in the ground. I think you're very close. As the rest of the herd was still waking up, the boys were chasing each other around the stockade compound, pushing against each other until they got into the forest. Then they started bashing, rumbling, and trumpeting in excitement. That seems uh, in accordance. I could see you bashing, rumbling, and trumpeting in Mm -hmm. excitement if you got out into the forest. I've done it. What... What happens when they grow into big elephants? Do they will they still be in the same herd, or do they have to go to different places? I wonder if they can be released from this compound. I wonder if this is kind of a place to get orphaned elephants. Oh, I see. Back into the swing of being elephants, and then and then they actually get to go to a right, uh, you know, a wildlife preserve somewhere. Right. I would hope, but these guys do seem to have quite a bit of land. They're they're running around the forest. But this is a place where they're also on display to people all the time, which is maybe not their permanent. Here's a, here's on September 10th, Bondeni was charging around the mud bath. Soon Esowit came to join him, and the duo ran up and down and through all the other orphans. They would even run along the rope, entertaining all the visitors with their chaos. So I think Esowit is a fan of the is a is popular with the tourists who come to the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. In yeah, Nairobi. he puts on a little show. Here, here. Yeah, I think here's what it is. This is their nursery unit, I think, where the which tends to be for kids. These are orphaned elephants, and maybe maybe they do have a, a life outside the wildlife trust once they've grown up. That's nice. Yeah, that is nice. That makes me happy. We took our I don't know if I've said this on the show. We took our kids to a sloth preserve in Costa Rica once because the kids had read up about the sloths and wanted to see them. And we later saw an article in Maybe some Portland Alt Weekly kind of suggesting that the place was um, just run by sloth hoarders who, who didn't want the sloths to get better, but just loved having hundreds of sloths around relying on them in much the same way that, you know, an elderly woman will die and get eaten by her 38 cats. I, now that I know it's a possibility, I want to be a sloth holder, a uh, hoarder. A sloth hoarder. I mean, right now you have zero sloths. How, what's the f- minimum number of sloths you would need, do you think, to become a sloth hoarder? 16. Like, no, six. So, yeah. I mean, when you think about the average number of sloths people own, yeah, right. it's like 0.0001. So, could a sloth just hang out in here with us? Uh, what, what if it was just slothing around? Like, it, I, I imagine that would be pretty nice, right? Are they happy? Hard to say. It's really hard to say. Like, what they don't need a ton of action like other things. Yeah, what if you gave him one of those cat scratching posts? It's a perfect pet for the kid who will never walk the dog. Just right. get him a sloth. Get him a sloth. I wonder if you can potty train a sloth. I bet the sloths are deeply unhappy in captivity and uh, and wither away. There's probably a reason why we don't have pet sloths. Let's see. Uh, domesticated sloth. Let's see what that pulls up. Do sloths make good pets? The Brevard Zoo blog answers. Most U- is illegal in most U.S. states, I think. There appear to be only 13 U.S. states that allow pet sloths, although Oregon is one. The problem is they don't like people that much. They, oh. they like solitude and quiet. They don't want, humans want to cuddle them because they look cute to our eyes, but they don't want to be cuddled. Right. They have lengthy claws, which are sharp, and large teeth, surprisingly large, which can inflict serious Injury. 
All right. Well, don't get a pet sloth, even if you live in one of the 13 states where, through some legal loophole, it appears to be. Whoa. Sloths okay. can live 40 years. Whoa. Are you saying you're too old for a sloth now? Well, it might outlive me. It might outlive you. Jeez. That's if I've got a baby sloth. But if I got like a full grown sloth. Get a sloth your age. Have a suicide pact with your mm-hmm. sloth. Get a sloth my age and say, the first one that dies wills everything to the other one. Have a tontine with your sloth. Why not? I'll, I'll have a big jug of fruity pleaser and the, the last one of us standing gets to drink the fruity pleaser. There's no law against it except in 37 states. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 36. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.